Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. So he's called the last Adam because we have a prototype of what God, well, desired, and then the prototype gets flawed. And then we have a second prototype of what God desires, and that prototype is perfect. We were made and born in the image of the first Adam, but we're born again and remade in the image of the last Adam, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. I'm so glad that you chose to spend part of your Christmas day with us. On this very special day, we're beginning a brand new series and a new book, The Gospel of John. Today's broadcast is part one of Pastor Sam's two-part message entitled, In the Beginning. We will be looking at the first 18 verses of John chapter one, where John introduces us to Jesus Christ, tells us who he is, where he came from, and what he came to do. So let's listen in. Turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. We begin another book in our study and survey of the New Testament, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. John 1, 1 through 18 today. Title of our study, In the Beginning. John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Two books in the Scriptures Begin with the words, in the beginning. The first is Genesis, the book of beginnings, where all things, except for God himself, begin. Creation itself. The second is the gospel according to John. And I like that he goes back all the way to the beginning. It's very practical. We'll see why he does it. But important to note, there are four gospel narratives, four historical biographies of Jesus' life, his birth, sinless life, substitutionary sacrifice as he died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, the good news of the gospel in those simple statements. Then he ascends into heaven having promised to come for us, so that where he is, we could be with him forever and then to someday return with us and fulfill his promise for that great and glorious time of peace and prosperity, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, post-book of Revelation judgments. Well, all of that brings us to this reality. Four Gospels three genealogies. Matthew, writing to the Jews, takes, well, Jesus back to David and to Abraham. He calls Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham. That's confusing for people reading the Bible for the first time because they're like, really? But it just means a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. Why does he go there? Because he's writing to his brethren, the Jews, with the express purpose of convincing them that Jesus is the promised Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, 
the Messiah. Lots of different terminology that all points to the same reality. Jesus, the one and only Savior, promised Savior of the Jews. Turns out, though, he's more than the Savior of the Jews. John will tell us, not in this gospel, but later, that he didn't die just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. John will tell us that God loves the world and all the people in it so much. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Mark writes, not to the Jews, but to Gentiles. He presents Jesus as the suffering servant. No genealogy is needed. No pedigree is desired. When you're hiring a servant, all you want to know is, can they and will they serve? And that's Mark's focus, is the works of Jesus, the, the, the things he did, writing to a culture that was kind of focused that direction. Luke, he writes to the Greeks. They're more mental, and by mental, I mean more in their heads. They read, and they're, they're more intellectual, and they're all about humanity. So he presents Jesus as God's perfect man. He focuses on the humanity of Jesus, and he goes all the way back in his genealogy to Adam. It's important. Adam means man. Adam was the first man. Jesus is called... The last Adam. It's confusing to some because, well, okay, he's the last man. No, there's some before him and there's others after. No, there were only two sinless men. There was Adam and there was Jesus. Adam was sinless for a season. We don't know how long, but we do know he was sinless the entire time he was single. And I'm not going to make anything out of that because I don't want to get in trouble with people I love and who like me. And so... But he did sin. The only other perfect man, the last Adam, and this is why Jesus is called the last Adam. He never sinned, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. He did always those things that pleased the Father. So he's called the last Adam because we have a prototype of what God well, desired, and then the prototype gets flawed. And then we have a second prototype of what God desires and that prototype is perfect. We were made and born in the image of the first Adam, but we're born again and remade in the image of the last Adam, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So John writes to the world. He presents Jesus as the Son of God and God the Son. He focuses not on the humanity of Jesus or just the works of Jesus or the great miracles and teaching of Jesus, though all that's in John. No, he focuses on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, that he and the Father are one. So um, we'll be looking into all that. Now, John himself, one of the 12 disciples, chosen along with his brother James, along with Peter and his brother Andrew. We'll see all that later in the book. But they were the first of the disciples chosen. They were called to be fishers of men because they were fishermen. He's like, see, see what you're doing there? I'm going to have you do something similar. But the target is bigger and the pay much greater. The benefit package out of this world, literally. So um, 
John 1 of 12, they begin as disciples, followers, chosen by Jesus, discipled by Jesus, sent out for Jesus, but ultimately they become apostles, which means to be sent out, one who is sent out. So the ones that follow, prepared, and sent out to represent him. John's gospel is absolutely unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, and they follow a sort of linear, historical, chronological, narrative biography of Jesus. They present basically the same story. There are minor differences, but never anything that contradicts the other. And when people say, you know, the, Matthew says this, and Mark says that, and Luke says this, if they all said everything word for word, we wouldn't need all three of them. And then people would say, well, they got together and they just decided they were all going to say the same thing. So people who are looking for a reason not to believe it, they're going to find something and they'll just, if they don't, they'll make up something. But you're of wiser, you know, stature, I would hope and think. So, so John is, is, is unlike them because he's more focused topically. Now, I like John a lot. I'm somebody who really likes and requires structure in the word, not so much in my life. You know, an unstructured life, musician, that's, it should say it all. But, but when it comes to the word, I like structure. And I like what John does because without disregarding the fact that Jesus was born and grew and lived among us and died for us, he grabs a hold of major themes and then he pulls from anywhere and everywhere in the story itself to substantiate and build a case for who Jesus is based on those themes. Two of those themes will be his seven signs and then his seven I am statements. I like this about John too. He likes the number seven. I like it. I've always liked it. Do you know when we first bought this theater, we had to give up an acre to strike the deal. And so we had 4.9, yeah, 4.1 acres. And um, yeah, how does that play out? Or did we have 5.1 or did we have 6.1? Okay, we had, uh, I'm not going to be able to tell you this story. I'll tell it to you later. <laughs> and the, the good reason is I'll waste too much time trying to get it right. But let me just say we ended up with, four, we started with 4.9. We bought another acre. That acre, we got it back, 5.9. Then later, we were able to buy one more acre, but it had a 0.1 on it. So, so it's seven acres exactly. That's the short version and clearest as I can get, if the, if the math even works. Because listen, I, don't, I can barely balance my checkbook these days. And, uh, but it's okay because I don't make a lot and I don't spend a lot. Most of the bills absorb it all. And I'm, I'm uh, you know, doing those automatically. So it's kind of working out. Nevertheless, John likes sevens. Let's get back to what I do know. And that's not what happened, you know. How long ago was that? The year 2000? A long time ago, 19 years. Anyway, John gives us seven signs and seven I am statements. We'll walk through these signs and get into the weeds on them, the good weeds. Um, but I should say the grain on them, I guess. But his first um, of the signs is he turns water to wine. One of the few miracles that every guy on the planet seems to have heard of. 
But it's beyond notable. It's radical. What actually transpires and how it goes down, we'll look at that in just a couple of weeks. And then there's the healing of the nobleman's son, followed by the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. He walks on water, which is a miracle. But when you're God, you ought to be able to walk on water. But the real miracle in that is that Peter walked on water too. So hanging with Jesus has some benefits you never would think about. Then there's the man born blind. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus, not just right after death or on his way to burial, but after four days in the grave, he does it simply by calling Lazarus out. Lazarus, rise. Lazarus, come forth. Well, the seven signs are also accompanied by, not always in perfect order, but seven I am statements. The first of them I am the bread of life is tied to his feeding of the 5,000. So some of these, they connect perfectly. Others, well, you think that, well, that, 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 that I am statement is going to be connected to this particular sign uh, sometimes, but not always. So he says that he's the bread of life. Of course, that's after feeding 5,000. He says he's the bread, by the way, that came down from heaven seven times in John 6. He says, I came down from heaven to do the will of my father. And the will of my father is that none would perish. And, and, and so whoever, he says, your, your, your ancestors, they, they had the manna, you know, and they died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Second sign our second I am statement, excuse me, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. And you would think, wait, wait, I bet, I bet that's going to be associated with the healing of the man born blind. It makes perfect sense. And it does precede it. But it follows on the heels of a woman caught they said in the very act of adultery. And he's dealing with two kinds of blindness there. He has the religious leaders who bring her and they cast her at his feet and say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? So much to unpack there, but we'll do it because these are just like, this is sort of an overview of where we're headed and what we'll be digging into. But he begins to write on the ground and ultimately he tells them, and this is according to the law of Moses, by the way, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. It was the responsibility of the one bringing the charge to lead the stoning. So uh, there's something else in the law too that I find intriguing. I don't think we'll ever be able to bring it back, but it sounded like a good idea to me. If you made an accusation toward another and that accusation proved to be false, then whatever the punishment that would have been extracted on them, well, then you had to, to face it. This would be a capital crime under the law of Moses. Adultery was a big deal under the law of Moses because, well, the holiness and the sanctity of marriage is huge to God. Still, was, is, and will always be. 
So if someone was guilty of adultery, they were to be brought. By the way, there's no they in the story. There's just her. That's troubling. But we'll save all that for later. Let me just say, when he says, the one without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. They leave one by one, starting with the eldest to the youngest. He looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Are there none? She said, none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We'll see that in John 3. Not only that, he says, go and sin no more. And I want to say, I don't think it was ever his intention that those two statements made back to back to the same person accused of the same sin. I don't think God ever intended that there would be a separation where some are like, well, we're in the uh, neither do I condemn you camp. Anything goes and we don't condemn you for any of it. But we're not, we didn't come to condemn, we represent him. But men are condemned because they continue in their sin, because they love darkness more than light. Neither I condemn you can't be a camp unless you're going to bring the go and sin no more into the equation. And there are those who are the go and sin no more. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. It's just all about stop sinning or, well, you know what's coming. And the bottom line, those two have to go together. God didn't come to condemn. He didn't send his son to condemn, but he tells us to stop the things we do that are damaging us and others around us and to do the things he wants us to do that are a blessing to him and to those around us. So I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he does, by the way, that heal a man born blind. I am the door of the sheep. You'll find this in John 10. And he also calls himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd. As the door of the sheep, he addresses an issue a lot of people are troubled by and stumble over. And what's that? That what about all the other religions and all the other religious leaders? What about them? Jesus' answer to that question would be, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. You know, it's, it's like you can't, you can't find salvation without a savior. And Jesus is the only savior. He's the only one in any religion that ever died for our sins, was buried and rose again. No one ever made such a claim except him. And, and if it weren't true, well, then we would be hopelessly lost forever. So he says he's the door of the sheep. And so we come through him or we don't come at all. He's the good shepherd. And he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Why? He's the only one who lays down his life for the sheep. And he goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And they won't follow strangers because they don't know the voice of strangers. He calls himself the resurrection and the life. Makes total sense that Lazarus being raised would follow that declaration. That's in John 11. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. And he says, no one, listen, no one comes to the Father but by me. Where's the Father? He's in heaven. You talk to people like, you believe in heaven? You believe in hell? Most people do believe in heaven. 
Some of them even believe in hell. Some people don't believe in any of it. But of those who believe in heaven and believe in hell, most believe they're going to heaven. But when you ask them, well, what's your plan to get there? There are all sorts of wild ideas out there. And, and there's only one plan that will get you to the Father and get you to heaven and get you to stand in his presence and hear well done and enter in. And that's that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again. Now, I know a lot of you, most of you, undoubtedly, you're aware of these things. So we're going to be reading and studying things we know well. There's so much here. If you're brand new and there's so much here, if you've walked through it for decades. So he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The seventh I am statement is I am the true vine. And he says in the beginning of that chapter, and again, that's in John 15, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without connectedness to the, the vine, the branch withers and dies, and it's worthless. And what he's saying is, if we abide in him, stay connected to him, well, then we'll bear fruit. Then God will prune us. And then we'll bear more fruit. And then we'll bear much fruit. And he says, ultimately, in this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Well, that brings us then, I know that's a lengthy introduction, but it's not close to when I go through the whole book in one day. And you can uh, log on to Jesus uh, from Gen Genesis to Revelation and look at and listen to that entire uh, series. Anyway, in the beginning was the word. A word is logos. It's a means of communication. Jesus, the ultimate communication of the heart of God, the nature of God, the plan of God. He says at one point, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrew says he is the exact representation of the Father. And so um, all we need to know about God, we learn by following Jesus through the word and then following Jesus in our lives. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's an affirmation of two things, his deity and a reminder of the Trinity. And while the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned, important to know when it says he was with God, God there has to be the father and important to know Jesus says of the Father that God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's not less than the Father because he became a man. No, he is equal to the Father and part of the Trinity, the Godhead, if you will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's an affirmation that he is God, the Son, and the Son of God, that he's a part of the Trinity, that he is, in fact, deity. He was in the beginning with God. This is his relationship to time. He's eternal. He pre-exists pre everything that was ever made because he is the creator of all things. In relationship to matter, well, all matter was created by him. 
and he is the sustainer of all things. Verse three, we read it, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Too many times I've heard it said that the Bible never clearly states that Jesus is God. Well, the only way a person could agree with that statement is if they've never read the Bible. Here in the beginning of the book of John, John not only calls Jesus God by saying in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, Jesus is the Word. He then goes on to attribute all of creation as an act performed by Jesus when he says all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Well, we also know that in Genesis 1 we are told that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it really doesn't take rocket science to see that the Bible here is declaring that Jesus is God. So you can rest on the fact that Jesus and the Father are one. You might struggle with the old how can that be syndrome when you hear them mentioned as if they were separate, but throughout scripture we are taught that Jesus is God. We should be careful not to fall into the trap of believing that just because something is beyond our ability to believe or understand, that it cannot be true. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.